Well, hello there. Welcome to the TPS Report, a podcast spectacle. That's what TPS stands for. I'm Ryan, the Airy Man. This, as you should know, this is a once a month show, once a month podcast that is uh, top secret. Don't tell anybody about this. Um, and, and this is even one of those episodes that everybody needs to hear if they went and saw, or, or they need to go see the movie. If you didn't go see the movie, then you can listen to the audio today. It's the first time we're doing a movie on here, but I think the movie, uh, the timing of everything, and the movie is is so interesting, and I think exposes the what kind of has been covered up in our history as uh, as America. Um, what, what we, what, what's been perceived as our history, and, and how how that's not how it is and it, it's all explained in uh in this movie and and the movie is hillary's america um let's see there's a there's a tagline on it real quick let me pull it up the secret history of the democratic party now uh it's hillary's america the secret history of the democratic party it's a film by dinesh d'souza he uh let's see here he uh, him and bruce schooley that's the other guy. Basically, here's the like the the one-liner of what the movie's about. Documentarian Dinesh D'Souza analyzes the history of the Democratic Party and what he thinks are Hillary Clinton's true motivations. So, um, it's a uh, it's a pretty good movie. I, I Dave and I went and saw it. Everybody that hearing this should know who Dave is. Uh, Dave Block. He's on almost every podcast on this network in some aspect. Anyways, uh, it was released on July 15th, 2016. Um, hmm. Dave and I saw it the, let's see, it was probably day four or day five of it being released. We went to the theater, went and saw it together. Um, it's an hour and 46 minutes long, PG-13, documentary style. But yet, not documentary style. It's actually um, they have a lot of like uh, reenactment type things, kind of going back and explaining everything um, of the Democratic Party and Republican Party. But how you know? Anyway, you, you, you'll see. You'll hear it. You don't necessarily need the visual for this. Uh, it, it's it's all like you know how it's um, narrated and whatnot. It's it's going to make a lot of sense just listening to it in this episode, and uh, I think it, it's such good information, um, and a lot of stuff that a lot of a lot of stuff that was in this movie I already knew about, but there's a lot of stuff that I didn't know about, and it was it's fascinating that this history has been kind of just swept under the rug, and and we now have the illusion or the history that most people know it's not what what actually happened is not what we're being taught it's it's insane that you could actually do this but this is what happens and i don't know anyways here's another little piece before we get into the film itself um if you go to rottentomatoes.com type in hillary's america click on it you'll see that you know the whole the whole kit and caboodle there about it. Uh, the audience score 
at the time I'm recording. Now, I don't know when you're listening to this. It could have changed. Uh, it could be higher or lower. I don't imagine it's going to be much higher or much lower, but uh, at the point of me recording it, it's 80% by the audience. 80%. You only have to have 60% on Rotten Tomatoes to be considered um, you know, fresh. Anything below 60% is considered rotten. Okay, So the audience score is 80% have liked it. Average rating of 4.1 out of 5. That's pretty good too. Okay, Now, Right next to that is all critics. All critics. They're giving it an average rating of 1.6 out of 10. One critic gave it a fresh. 22 gave it rotten. That's at the time I'm reading this. So it's a 4% rotten. Now if you go to the top critics, and I don't, I don't know what the difference between the top critics and all critics. I'm guessing the top critics are like the uh, nationwide renowned... Uh, critics or whatever i don't know uh they're giving it a zero percent the average rating is a 0.8 out of 10 no fresh 11 run yet the audience is giving it an 80 percent does anybody else see a problem here um is there not some sort of bias in the uh critics as as opposed to, like, movies. Now, take, like, a movie like, um, oh, I don't know, anything that promotes uh, guns, uh, gun violence, um, shit like that, wars, anything like that, and, and they all get shit, shit on by critics, even though they're really good movies. And then you have movies with a bunch of stuffy old people, uh, you know, sitting in a garden talking about shit that doesn't matter, and the critics love that. What, what the fuck is wrong with critics? And and maybe we should go off of the audience score rather than critics, because I don't think critics have a fucking clue. I do think there's uh, a, a lot of, um, you know, you know, a critic. You're, you're basically telling people whether or not they should go see this movie and this movie doesn't fit the political agenda or the narrative right now so you need to shit on it and then they shit on it or they just don't review it at all but the audience goes and sees it regardless and they like it i, I think if you went and saw this you, you know went in and looked at, at every movie you're going to see this this uh this trend of critics Liking shit that fits the narrative, disliking shit that doesn't fit the narrative. That's an issue. And uh, so, if you use RottenTomatoes.com, more power to you, but uh, consider why maybe a critic is shitting on the film and and, uh, and why the audience seems to like movies that critics shit on so much. And uh, I think that kind of will explain why so many people were into Bernie Sanders but don't like Hillary. You know, that's, uh, critics are for Hillary, the rest of America's for Bernie. At this point, now you got to pick because you don't have Bernie as an option anymore. Uh, and no offense, but I'm pretty sure, uh, Bernie sold you guys out, you Bernie supporters. He sold you guys out. He tricked you, uh, and, uh, he dished you up a nice platter of dog shit, which is Hillary Clinton. 
And uh, it's up to you if you really want to vote for that dog shit or if you'd rather go for the Oompa Loompa leader. I don't know. You can always go third party. But today we have the, the audio of Hillary's America, the secret history of the Democratic Party. It's interesting. You're going to learn a lot. And like I said before, this is top secret. Do not tell anybody. It's for the subscribers only. And enjoy the movie. Forget your woes. Why? 
because you can always count on the Democratic Party. We'd have a different conversation. There is not a single case where someone like Mr. D'Souza, who is a first-time offender, has gone to prison. Yet, the government wants to send Mr. D'Souza to a federal prison for two years. The claim of selective prosecution is all hat, no cattle. Here's my decision. All rise. It is my judgment that he be locked up overnight for eight months in a community confinement center. Five years probation. Mr. D'Souza is required to do community service every week for eight hours for five years. And he is to participate in weekly therapeutic counseling. We are adjourned. And what was my real crime? Well, President Obama is front and center in one of the biggest movies of the week. The documentary 2016, Obama's America, examines what the country might be like if he wins a second term. In that film, I made the following predictions. 
Obama will deliberately reduce America's power in the world. He will weaken our allies. The headline we've been teasing and talking about here is the president abandoning Israel. The U.S. is to show the Bush administration's plans for a missile defense system in Poland and the Czech Republic. After my election, I am more flexible. Two thousand Russian forces inside Ukraine and strengthen our enemies. It is totally unacceptable for the President of the United States to reward a dictatorial regime. Russia is to lift its ban on the sale of anti-missile rocket systems to Iran. At a speech over the weekend in front of a crowd chanting death to America, Iran's Ayatollah Khamenei agreed. Iran has our sailors. Ten American sailors captured in the custody of our enemy, Iran. The United States has apologized to Iran. Russia is launching its first airstrike in Syria. Moscow has been building its military presence there. An intent to prop up Bashar al-Assad. Obama will bring major industries under the rod of government control. Obamacare premiums across the country skyrocketing. Lack of transparency is a huge political advantage. More than a billion dollars wasted. And a billion more owed. The website's launch has been nothing short of disastrous. Obama meeting with top regulators this afternoon to pressure them to finish the Dodd-Frank financial reform bill. I think it was something like 1,100 new pages of regulations just dedicated you know, to mortgage alone. If somebody wants to build a coal power plant, they can. It's just that it will bankrupt them. The Keystone XL pipeline would not serve the national interests of the United States. Obama will double the national debt. Trillion dollar deficits. We've never had one in American history. He's now had four in a row. Obama will slash defense spending. President Obama's defense chief says he wants to reduce army troop levels to numbers last seen in 1940. Giving other global powers the green light to grow stronger. Russia has doubled the amount of state money allocated to military spending since 2010. China announced its biggest increase in military spending in three years on Wednesday. Firing off a defiant round of short-range projectiles into the sea on Thursday. Seeing the opportunity, radical Muslims will begin to realize their dream of transforming the Middle East into the United States of Islam. And the threat won't stop there. The city of Paris under attack. Over a hundred killed, blocking several bloody scenes. And moving beyond the borders of Syria and Iraq. We begin in Brussels. ISIS has claimed responsibility for the blast that killed more than 30 people, including at least 200 others. ISIS to launch attacks here in the U.S. with the ultimate aim of a global Islamic empire. If you make a film criticizing the most powerful man in the world, expect the empire to strike back. Empty your pockets. No cell phone, no wallets. You check in every night by eight. You and me will have no trouble. Hey Jose, trying to make me jealous? It's worth your time to rub down next. What prison are you coming from? I, I didn't get prison. It's too bad. You go to a white collar prison, Martha Stewart type. You get tennis courts and libraries. 
inmates from mayors, business execs, doctors, students, Medicare, tax evaders, people like that. What about in here? Much different class of people. But uh, it's safe here, right? Next. Don't be jumping. Get too cozy, huh? Get back to my wife. I don't want to wake up in the morning and whisper your name. They're trying to teach me a lesson. They think I don't get it. Maybe they're right. For years, I've had an idealized picture of America. What's dawning on me now is that I've been too focused on America as it ought to be. There's another America, the America of the street, with its own code and its own rules. There's power in getting into a gang and controlling the whole neighborhood. It's like my home country of India. There the whole country is controlled by gangs, street gangs, political gangs. They own you. That's why I left India. To come to America. My lesson involves mandatory psychological counseling. The Obama people believe I need to be re-educated. And is this supposed to be punishment? I've been ordered to teach English to immigrants. Hello, class. Hello. My kind of people. I'm going to talk to you today about America, about what it means to become American. Now, I can come to Mexico, or you can come to India, but I can no more become Mexican than you can become Indian. America is a country based on ideas, based on assimilation to a certain way of life. I wonder what way of life got these guys here. So what are you in for? Drug smuggling. Armed robbery. Manslaughter. Murder. Get him a bar fight. And I set him on fire. What are you in here for? 
A friend of mine was running for office and I gave her more than I was allowed to give. I think I might be the stupidest criminal in the history of American jurisprudence. In our home country, slavery, Jim Crow, all too often was justified in the name of Christ. I'm a conservative in a very strange place. I'm not likely to run into Charles Krauthammer or George Will. You India. You do that chess, man? Yeah. Let's find out. You know what? There's a few things I want to find out myself. Remember that during the Crusades and the Inquisition, people committed terrible deeds in the name of Christ. Your gang's all about stealing, man. Crime's all about stealing. What's the biggest gang? <laughs> right in your face. Politicians, man. How does the gang make money? Any way they can, you know? Trafficking, smuggling, stealing, extortion. Whatever. Yeah, but how do they pull it off? Step one, get a plane. Step two, recruit. Listen up, everybody, sit down. What we're gonna start to do? We're gonna be selling life insurance. Next, it's all about the pitch. They gotta sell it to the target. If you want something from someone, man, you don't need to go kick in that door. All you need to do is walk right up to it and knock. Yeah, man, what we were selling was life insurance. A policy that once, you know, uh, God forbid, they die, their claim, like 50 Gs or whatever it is, goes to like the, uh, the inner city help fund, AKA us. That's the first pitch, be a do-good. It will be nice to leave this world knowing that you did something good for others less fortunate. A second comes green. They sign up today, man, we'll give them five grand and we'll pay a monthly premium. So basically they pay nothing out of pocket, right? And they pocket five large. Bless you, bless you. And we sign up whoever, wherever. You sign up today, make $5,000. You know, believe it or not, you know, we got lucky every time. Months after they sign up, you know, uh, for some reason, they just died. Hey, Bob! Anyways, man, after a while, the insurance company's caught on, you know? But now you're at the final step. Never give up the con. Never give up the con. Deny, deny, deny. Look, I done told y'all a million times. I don't know anything, I didn't see anything, and I ain't saying nothing. How'd you get caught? Snitch, man. You know what happens to snitches, don't you? Anyways, now it's time for a new plan. The old one won't work anymore, right? Got any ideas?
does Rock's story seem so familiar? I heard about similar cons from others. Each con follows the same formula. You plan, you pitch, you take, you deny. The criminals in here believe they are the small fry, the ones who got caught. They believe that the big criminals are still at large. Then it hit me. What if they're right? What if the same theft formula is being used against the American people? I'm a scholar, written a bunch of books, but what do I really know about the Democratic Party? Who are these Democrats? What's their racket? Are they the big crooks? I asked Rock. Are you serious? The Democrats are the party for us. I mean, that's, that's, that's the party for the minorities, you know what I mean? The party for, for, for civil rights, for poor people, that's us. They still in nothing. We want to talk about stealing. That's going to be the Republicans all day. That's the party for slavery. Racists, that's a bunch of rich fat cats, but they're probably thieving. Yeah. Yeah, they're thieving. Everyone has been anticipating today an official announcement coming from Hillary Clinton that she was officially in the race for the White House. We understand a video will be rolled out momentarily. We have our political reporters all over the What if the goal of the Democratic Party is to steal the most valuable thing the world has ever produced? What if their plan is to steal America? their pitch. They've got to get elected before they steal America. So how much of America do they want? I'm not just talking about taking over a branch of the government or even the whole government. I'm talking about taking over every industry, banks, investment companies, hospitals, insurance, the energy sector, coal and oil, education, the media, even small businesses. I'm talking about taking over the wealth of the American people, their savings accounts, their retirement funds, even their hopes and aspirations, how they live their lives. The thieves of America want to take it all. They want to own you, and to a considerable degree, they already do. But how are they doing this? How are they pulling it off? I got Obama right. Now I need to figure out Hillary. Health care costs, protect Planned Parenthood and women's health, and 
she's the one candidate with the strength to stand up to the Republicans. Donald Trump has made a name for himself by trafficking in ugly, hateful rhetoric. I'm from Mumbai. Oh, very cool. Wow, that's a long way. Welcome. Tell me, um, why do you volunteer here? Well, because I love people. And the Democratic Party has a long history of loving people and caring for the poor and the needy. Really? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, everybody knows that. Please, take a look around. I hope you learn all you can about the Democratic Party. Me too. We empower you with the tools and the truth. You'll work with us to spread the word. You're going to help us define the Republican brand. Calling for equal pay and paid leave and women's health is playing the gender card. Then deal me in. Right now, the Republican presidential candidates are threatening to turn back the clock on our party. And we're going to push back with our two strongest weapons: the truth and you. After all, that's what we've always been about as Democrats inclusion and empowerment we know democrats succeed when we empower people with information and when we mobilize them to get involved the democrats are the party of economic opportunity social justice and racial equality that's their pitch but is it true what's abraham lincoln doing here he was the founder of the republican party but if lincoln founded the republican party who founded the Democratic Party? It's time to get to the bottom of this. Many people think the Democratic Party was founded by FDR. But obviously there was a Democratic Party before FDR, going back to the 19th century. So what are the true origins of the Democratic Party? In the early 19th century, Jefferson's party, the Democratic-Republican Party, split. Out of that split came the Democratic Party, and a little later, the Republican Party. In the 1820s, the Democrats elected a man who would uphold their principles. His name was Andrew Jackson. Democratic historians celebrate Jackson as a champion of the common man. But how did Jackson win over the ordinary Democrat? He did it by seizing the land of the American Indians. He massacred them, he burned their homes and villages, and in violation of treaties, he then sold that land at bargain basement prices to white settlers in exchange for their votes. On the topic of American Indians, Jackson spoke very candidly. They had neither the intelligence, the industry, the moral habits, nor the desire of improvement, which are essential to any favorable change in their condition. Established in the midst of another and a superior race, they must necessarily yield to the force of circumstances and before long disappear. I call on Senator Freeling, you The National Republican Party, which would later become the modern Republican Party, bitterly fought Jackson's Indian removal bill in the Senate. I support 
accept the claims of the Indians to all of their political and civil rights. We cannot rightfully take Indian land by violence. National Republican Congressman Davy Crockett also opposed Jackson on this issue. Jackson's famous, or should I say infamous, Indian bill was brought forward. Several of my colleagues said it was a favorite measure of the president. Said I ought to go for it. I told him it was a wicked and unjust measure. And I should go against it. Let the cost to myself be what it might. But the Democrats passed it, and Jackson signed it into law. Alexis de Tocqueville, the French observer of early American history, describes what he witnessed firsthand. In the whole scene, there was an air of ruin and destruction. One couldn't watch without feeling one's heart wrong. We watch the expulsion of one of the most celebrated and ancient American peoples. It was a trail of tears. The Democrats created reservations where those Indians that they hadn't killed could now live dependent on the federal government. In addition to stealing the land of the Indians, the Jackson Democrats embraced another theft scheme, slavery. They imprisoned their slaves not on reservations, but on plantations. Jackson owned hundreds of slaves. Betty here, getting a little uppity about her work. Please, Mr. Jackson. Fifty lashes. Come on. Come on. Betty is capable of being a good and valuable servant, but to have her so, she must be ruled with the cowhide. What was Betty's offense? Betty washed clothes for neighbors without asking permission of the Jacksons. In 1804, Jackson placed ads in northern newspapers for the return of one of his runaway slaves. Jackson offered $50 and an extra $10 for each hundred lashes, up to 300 lashes, which was pretty much a death sentence. And on his own plantation, Jackson's slaves were treated just as harshly. Is it done? Yes, sir. With the slaves, Jackson didn't just steal their labor.
what is it about democratic presidents and innocent young women? Why did the Democrats elect a racist like Jackson? Because the party was racist through and through. The Republican Party formed from opposition to the idea of extending slavery into the territories and requiring free states to return runaway slaves. The most notorious defender of slavery was Democratic Senator John C. Calhoun, Andrew Jackson's vice president. Traditionally, slavery was defended as a necessary evil, but Calhoun went further, arguing that slavery benefited both the master and the slave. Instead of an evil, a good, a positive good. A moral justification for slavery? No, this was a con man's pitch. Today's Democrats try to duck their party's responsibility for slavery by blaming it on the South. But in fact, the Northern Democrats also protected slavery. Their ingenious advocate was Illinois Senator Stephen Douglas. Douglas thought each state, each territory, should decide for itself if it wanted slavery. And he envisioned slavery lasting forever, not just in America, but spreading to other countries as well. The Republican Party was born with the single overriding purpose to stop the spread of slavery. When Republican Senator Charles Sumner in 1856 vehemently denounced slavery, he got a most extraordinary response from Democratic Congressman Preston Brooks. The attack nearly killed him. The Democrats support slavery and think it should be extended while we Republicans oppose slavery. Lincoln understood slavery was a form of theft. Slavery is the theft of a person's life and freedom and the fruit of their labor. As Lincoln put it, you work, I eat. A toast to the Democratic Party. We often hear of the Civil War as a contest between the anti-slavery North and the pro-slavery South. This is Democratic Party propaganda. It may seem strange, that men should dare to ask for just God's assistance in wringing their bread from the sweat of other men's faces. Fondly do we hope, fervently do we pray that this mighty scourge of war may speedily pass away. In the end, there was only one way to stop them. until all the wealth piled by the bondsman's 250 years of unrequited toil be sunk, and until every drop of blood drawn with the lash be paid by another drawn with the sword, as was said 3,000 years ago, so still must be said, 
the judgments of the law are true and righteous altogether. But wait a minute, you say, didn't some Republicans own slaves? Actually, no. No Republicans own slaves. Think about it. All the slaves at the time of the Civil War were owned by Democrats. So the Civil War is better understood as a contest between the anti-slavery Republican Party and the pro-slavery Democratic Party. Why are we dying for these Negroes? Well, the right to put into his own mouth the bread that his own hands have earned, he's as equal as any other man, black or white. All I ask for the Negro is that if you don't like him, let him alone. If God gave him but little, that little let him enjoy. Yes, sir. What's your name, sir? James McKnight. And you? Ask him, sir. Ronald, ask him. I thank you for your service, man. Lincoln wanted to give freed slaves citizenship, equal rights, and the right to vote. The Democrats couldn't believe it. So they killed the father of the Republican Party. Confronted with the Democratic Party's legacy of oppression from Indian massacres to broken treaties to slavery, the Democrats say yes, but we are the party of the civil rights movement of the 1960s. But wait a minute, there was another civil rights movement, this one in the 1860s, and it was led by the Republican Party. The Democrats don't want you to know about this civil rights movement because they fought against it. This Civil Rights Act will allow colored men to sit at the same table beside the white men. And he shall enter the same parlor and take his seat beside the wife and daughter of the white man. Whether the white man is willing or not. The civil rights revolution of the 1960s did nothing more than secure guarantees for equal rights and voting rights that had already been put into the Constitution a hundred years previously by the Republican Party. And here's a little-known fact. More Republicans than Democrats voted for the 1964 Civil Rights Act. Today's Democrats take credit for civil rights legislation, but what was their contribution? They finally agreed to stop filibustering it so it could pass. You've heard about 40 acres and a mule. The Republican Party set aside 400,000 acres of confiscated Confederate land and began dividing it to give freed slaves 40 acres and a leftover army mule. Democratic President Andrew Johnson gave the land back to its former plantation owners. Today, the Democrats proclaim themselves the party of economic opportunity, but the truth is they fought to stop the 13th Amendment, which permanently abolished slavery. The Republicans passed it with 100% support. 77% of Democrats voted against it. Democrats today call themselves the party of social justice, but they fought to block the 14th Amendment that gave citizenship to blacks and established equality of rights under the law. It passed with 94% Republican support in Congress. Every Democrat voted against it. And Democrats today never tire of lecturing Republicans about racial equality. But it was the Democratic Party that fought against the 15th Amendment, refusing to give slaves the right to vote. 
Every Republican in Congress voted for the 15th Amendment. Every Democrat voted against it. Ah, yes, and in case we forget, Republicans also gave women the right to vote. The suffragettes were virtually all Republicans. Democrats opposed women's suffrage, fighting it in Congress, where they lost, and then fighting it in the states, where they lost again. So the Republican Party is the party of anti-slavery and equal rights under the law. The Democratic Party is the party of the trail of tears, broken treaties, slavery, and opposition to equal rights under the law. And when their old plan was defeated by the Republicans, the Democrats needed a new con. I'm reminded of what Rock told me. Now we gotta get a new plan. The old one won't work anymore, you know? There's more I need to learn about the secret history of the Democratic Party. I knew exactly who I had to go see. Carol Swain, professor at Vanderbilt Law School, is one of America's leading experts on the history of race relations and civil rights. Blacks have been used to oppression from America and also from the Democratic Party. And it's been hard for me to accept because I was a Democrat for most of my life. What made you change? It was a number of different things. Some of it had to do with me learning more about the history of the Democratic Party and just watching how they use blacks for their agenda. The Democratic Party was a party of slavery. And after slavery was abolished in 1865, it was in total ruins. Seems like they needed uh, a new racket. Well, they came up with one. The Ku Klux Klan was founded by Nathan Bedford <coughs> Forrest. He was the first Grand Wizard of the Ku Klux Klan and a pledged delegate to the Democratic Convention. The whole purpose of the Democratic Party was to reestablish white supremacy. In fact, in 1868, the party uh, platform was, this is a white man's country, let a white man rule. Notice how they portray blacks. The lily white Democrat against the black Republican. Why were blacks such a threat to the Democratic Party? Blacks were the majority in several southern states. They were able to send numerous people to the state legislatures. They had 22 members of Congress. And so this was a nightmare for the Democrats because all of a sudden they were being ruled by black Republicans and they reacted with brutality. The party had its own war machine and its targets were blacks and white Republicans like Congressman James Hines, the first sitting member of Congress assassinated. <laughs> reign of terror, they killed over 3,000 blacks and over 1,000 white Republicans. This is a white man's country. Let the white man rule. The Klan was the military arm of the Democratic Party. Democrats used discriminatory laws and violence to keep blacks in their place.
has all of this been swept under the rug? To cover the tracks of the Democratic Party. And we're not even talking about ancient history. The racism continued well into the 20th century. Sometimes the violence intensified. Other times the racism merely changed forms. <laughs> Negroes continue to ravish our white women, we will continue to lynch him. The white man will not submit to the black man gratifying his lust on our wives and daughters without lynching him. One heroine from that era was a black journalist named Ida B. Wells, long before Rosa Parks refused to sit in the back of the bus. Ida B. Wells refused to give up her first-class train seat to a white man. The reason we don't hear more about this is because Ida B. Wells was a Republican. She worked for a Republican paper that denounced lynching. Who are you? Press. People deserve to know what crime was committed that sentenced this man to death. I ain't gonna tell you nothing. Is that a quote, Sheriff McNeil? You ain't the white woman. What white woman? That white woman. I ain't forced nothing. We friends. You ain't your boy. Ain't that right? Tell them, Marshal. They're gonna kill me. Hold on, you know him. Get her out of here. She's been through enough. Marshal, tell them. Get her out of here. Oh, please, Rodney. Please. Any witnesses? He been swapped? I'm the judge. They the jury. Stay out of the way of the law. You'll be strung up yourself. After stripping holes of his clothes and chaining him to a tree, while some of the crowd plunged knives into the victim's flesh, others watched with unfailing satisfaction. The lesson this teaches, which every Negro should ponder well, is that a Winchester rifle should have a place of honor in every black home. It should be used for that protection which the law refuses to give. We must rise against mob rule, not just from a standpoint of sentiment, nor even so much from a standpoint of justice to a weak race, but from a desire to preserve our American institutions. The struggle against lynching had the same moral import as the struggle against slavery. For as the Henry Smith lynching show, both were in league with death and the covenant with hell. She made the remarkable statement that um, what blacks actually needed was Second Amendment rights. Throughout the South, when they passed the black codes, they put in provisions that if you were black, you couldn't own a gun. So that means that the KKK rides up into your yard, you don't have anything to defend yourself with. So the Second Amendment 
was very important to blacks. It was something that she championed because she knew that as long as they were unarmed, they would be prey to white racists. You're saying that early democratic efforts to have gun control had a racist motive. Yes, almost everything they did had a racist motive. Now the Klan had a revival in the early part of the 20th century. Why was that? Another fan of the KKK was none other than President Woodrow Wilson. Tell me about the screening of the film called The Birth of a Nation by E.W. Griffith. It was unfortunate for our country that the first movie ever screened in the White House was a racist movie by a racist Democratic president. The film led to the rebirth of the Klan in America. The film quoted Wilson, it denounced the Reconstruction era when blacks briefly held office. It depicted blacks played by whites in blackface as ugly, vulgar, and uncivilized predators who liked nothing better than raping white women. to self-preservation, until at last there sprung into existence a great Ku Klux Klan. To rid themselves, by fair means or foul, of the intolerable burden of government sustained by the votes of ignorant Negroes. Wilson authorized members of his cabinet to reverse and resist integration with blacks. In 1914, Ida B. Wells and a group of black leaders confronted him about his racist, discriminatory policies. Mr. President. Gentlemen, Mr. Turner, you must be Ida Wells. Mr. President. I understand you have some concerns. You have fired most of the government's black supervisors. Your department chiefs have assigned black separate workrooms, lunch halls, and toilets. Segregation is not a humiliation, but a benefit, and ought to be so regarded by you, gentlemen. Oh, I do approve the segregation being attempted in several departments of the federal government. It is distinctly to the advantage of the colored people themselves. You presume that segregation is good for blacks? I disagree. You'll be hearing from us. I am not a Democrat because their records from the beginning have been inimical to my interests, because they have become notorious in their hatred of the Negro as a man. They have refused him valid, murdered him, beaten and outraged him, and have refused him his rights. It didn't make a bit of difference. Wilson continued segregating the federal government. Talk about the 1924 Democratic National Convention. You mean the Klan Bank? Yes. Tens of thousands of Klansmen marched on New York City shouting racist slogans and burning crosses to celebrate the Democratic Party's refusal to condemn the KKK in their platform. Carol, was the New Deal a radical break with the racist policies of the Democratic past? 
FDR didn't have the votes to pass the New Deal program, so he promised the Democratic Party that he would block any anti-lynching legislation and he would exclude blacks from most New Deal programs. White farmers were paid not to grow crops, which meant that many blacks lost their jobs. So most blacks, if they worked on the land, if they worked as maids, if they were paid in cash, they couldn't get Social Security. And that continued with the Great Society, right, with Johnson? What Johnson knew he needed the black vote, but privately. I want to have to bring up the Negro Bill again. Let's face it, our ass is in a crack. In Texas, there are more Negroes voting now than white people. These Negroes are getting pretty uppity these days. And that's a problem for us since they got something now they never had before. The political pull to back up the uppings. Now, we've got to give them a little something. Just enough to quiet them down. But not enough to make a difference. Why is this legislation so important to you? I'm going to have them niggers voting Democratic for the next 200 years. <laughs> but I need your help, and I need your help to do it. Are you saying that today's Democratic Party continues to use blacks for their political advantage? Absolutely, that's exactly what I'm saying. The Democratic Party has been busted again and again for slavery, for segregation, for racism. But just like any good con artist, they know, never give up, never the, con. Give up the con. Deny, deny, deny. Instead of accepting blame, they shift the blame onto the very people who fought against their injustice. Today's Democrats don't like to hear about their own history. The Klan is a terrorist organization that has killed leftist terrorists. You can put whatever label you want, you want. That's your, that's your game to play. No, that's your game to play. They're not like, we're not playing that game. If you are racist, you're probably a Republican. Like a lot of Democrats, he's relying on the big switch. That's the idea that the Democrats got racially enlightened and became the good guys, whereas the racists in the Democratic Party all became Republicans. The big switch seems to be supported by the fact that blacks, who used to vote Republican, did switch over to the Democratic Party. Also, Southern whites, who used to uniformly vote Democratic, now vote Republican. Then there's Senator Strom Thurmond, a racist Democrat, who became a Republican. Even many Republicans today believe in the big switch. But wait a minute, blacks switched to the Democratic Party in the 1930s, based on the promises of the New Deal. They didn't do it because of race. Many reluctantly moved to the Democratic Party, knowing they were joining the party of segregation and the Ku Klux Klan. Southern whites moved over to the Republican Party much later, during the 1970s through the 90s, as the South became more prosperous. Racism had declined dramatically in the South. So as the South became less racist, it became more Republican. So blacks and whites both switched parties for economic reasons. The proof of this is in Byron Schaefer and Richard Johnston's book, The End of Southern Exceptionalism. The authors provide data to show that the poorest, most racist whites never switched. The ones that did switch were the non-racists who were attracted to the Republican Party's message of opportunity, prosperity, and upward mobility. 
So what about Strom Thurmond? Was he typical? How many races in the Democratic Party leadership switched and became Republicans? Let's make a list and we'll see who switched. We'll start with the leaders of the Ku Klux Klan. Now let's add in the leaders of various racist organizations and Democratic congressmen and Democratic senators from 1860 all the way to 2000. Let's throw in all the people who voted against the Civil Rights Act of 1964. So there they are, all 1,600 of them. Ready for the big switch? We'll go from Democratic blue to Republican red. So here it is. Yes, that's it. Less than 1%. The big switch is a big lie. The Democrats didn't switch from being the bad guys to the good guys. They simply found a new and bigger scam. Great migration, millions of Southern Blacks moved north to the cities. They were joined by millions of immigrants from all over the world. So the Democrats got an idea. Let's recreate the plantation, but now do it in the inner city. I'm not the first to call these neighborhoods plantations. Here's Obama reading from his book, dreams from my father. Seemed like we'd always be second-class citizens. Plantation politics, the man with the newspaper said. That's just what it was, too. A plantation. Black people in the worst jobs, the worst housing. Police brutality rampant. But when the so-called black commitment came around election time, we'd all line up and vote the straight Democratic ticket. Sell our souls for Christmas turkey. White folks spitting in our faces when we reward them with the vote. So what has Obama done to get rid of the Democratic plantation? Nothing. That's because he's running it. The Democratic urban plantations were not just for blacks. They were also for other minorities and immigrants. When these groups arrived, they found, waiting for them, the Democratic Welcoming Committee. They helped them out, found them a place to live, got them jobs. The immigrant plantations had their own names, ghettos, slums, barrios. The Democratic Party built them, put these vulnerable people in them, and made sure no one left them. But nothing's free, right? In exchange, they made sure these immigrants voted for them. You, you, let's go. Gangs have bosses who control things. The Democrats figured out they could transfer this model to politics. They invented the big city boss. Democrat city bosses sought to control not just government through patronage and payoffs and corruption. They also sought control of industry. They wanted to control unions. 
I want you to get out there and get the votes out. That's what I want. And once in power, they looted the city treasury and used their power to shake down businesses. Wanted city contracts? Now I am the city. So really the whole operation is not for the people's benefit, but for their benefit. This is what makes them the original community organizers. Big city bosses were a local racket. The Democrats needed a pitch for why they should be running the whole country in the same way they were running the inner cities. I knew exactly who I should see. Jonah Goldberg is an editor at the National Review. Jonah, Democrats used to call themselves very commonly liberals. But today, more commonly, they use the term progressive. What does progressive actually mean? Social engineering and social control, where experts and bureaucrats and government officials guide society in a very specific forward direction towards an end goal in mind. It kind of seems, Jonah, like the film Metropolis. It was all about class struggle and social control. Right. Now was the era of political parties and political movements that were going to guide society forward. Planning, which empowers the planners. There was this revolution in Europe and in the United States. In America, we called it progressivism. Soviet Union, they called it communism. In, in Italy, they called it fascism. Flagship magazine of American liberalism, The New Republic, celebrated Benito Mussolini throughout the 1920s. FDR had nice things to say about Benito Mussolini. Mussolini refused FDR's book and says, hey, this guy's one of us. He's a fascist. And it's important to remember that fascism back then wasn't about the Holocaust. It was about planning and experimenting and uh, ushering in this new progressive era. Now, one of the very important strands of modern progressivism, the idea of eugenics, who is the figure that comes to mind who embodies this? I mean, the obvious answer to the question is Margaret Sanger. Thank you for coming. I'm Margaret Sanger. Margaret Sanger is the founder of Planned Parenthood. Hello. In the mid-1920s, Margaret Sanger spoke to a group that came to hear her in full regalia. Eugenics means the release and cultivation of the better racial elements in our society and the gradual suppression, elimination, and eventual extirpation of defective stocks, those human weeds which threaten the blooming of the finest flowers of American civilization. The most merciful thing that a large family does to one of its infant members is to kill it. By Sanger's time, techniques of racial elimination like lynching had become taboo within the Democratic Party. And so Sanger pioneered a different approach to bring about a similar result. How would you describe Margaret Sanger's so-called Negro Project? The Negro Project was to bring these uh, birth control and other eugenic measures into the black community. She hired black ministers expressly to sell the idea. We don't want word to go out that we want to exterminate the Negro population. And the minister is the man who can straighten out that idea. It ever occurs to any of their more rebellious members. Surely today's Democratic Party leaders would repudiate Margaret Sanger. I, 
admire Margaret Sanger enormously. I am really in awe of her. And there are a lot of lessons that we can learn from her life and from the cause she launched and fought for and sacrificed so bravely. It is unfortunate that Planned Parenthood has been the object of such a concerted attack. So what would you expect for intact uh, tissue? What, what sort of compensation? What, what would make you happy? What would work for you? Oh, I <laughs> <laughs> I really face trouble with affirmative action. I don't want my kids being disadvantaged, you know, against um, black kids. I just have a baby. I want to put it in his name. You know, we just think, you know, the, the, less, the less black kids out there, the better. <laughs> so I'm hoping that uh, this um, uh, situation will not further undermine the very important services that Planned Parenthood provides. Hello, this is Sue. May I help you? Hi, uh, Sue. Amish in making a donation. Could I specify that abortion be done, uh, those abortions be done for a particular minority group? If you wish, you can. Okay. So, so for example, the black community in Tulsa, the abortions will be done specifically for the black community abortions. Great. Today. The vast majority of Planned Parenthood clinics are located in our neighborhoods. We were tripped through a slick marketing campaign, but now that that's unraveling, people are saying, wait a minute, they sell baby parts? What happened to my baby? Standing up and fighting for progressive values. And the Nazis admired Sanger and actually um, patterned some of their programs along the lines of things that she suggested. Yeah, the first people who get wiped out under the Nazis actually aren't the Jews. They're mentally unfit, invalids and all that. They, they went through the hospitals and they cleaned those guys out. What happened to Carrie Buck? Carrie Buck is a tragic and a really important story. Carrie Buck is this young woman that was supposed to be quote-unquote feeble-minded. They wanted to forcibly sterilize her. Her case went all the way up to the Supreme Court. <laughs> Oliver Wendell Holmes says that it's okay to forcibly sterilize this young woman uh, who wasn't feeble-minded. She read, she was, you know, perfectly competent and certainly didn't deserve to be forcibly sterilized. And he says in these, this famous damning line in his opinion, three generations of imbeciles is enough. <laughs> Forcing sterilized back in those days meant something. And holding this woman down, doing these terrible things to her through the power of the state, simply because the state had this idea of what the population should look like and who should have the right to be able to have children. Tens of thousands of people across the United States were sterilized. The opening video of the Democratic Convention in 2012, government is the one thing we all belong to. No, government belongs to us. 
We don't belong to it. We are citizens, not subjects. You remember the Life of Julia ad that the Obama administration put out? Every frame begins with the words, under President Obama, Julia gets this kind of scholarship and this kind of loan and this kind of promised job. The previous sentence in modern American political history was when the Life of Julia ad says, under President Obama, Julia decides to have a child. Nowhere in this do you see Julia's family. There are no parents. There's no husband. There are no friends. It's just the state as personified by Barack Obama, community, churches, synagogues, family, friends, mediating institutions, as the social scientists call them, that give us a sense of order and place in the world. That's what the role of the state is playing. And it was completely contrary to the ideas of the founding of this country, the, the, the classical liberal ideas of the founding of this country. The fruits of your labor belong to you. Our rights come from God, not from government. We are citizens, not subjects. So progressivism is actually progress away from the founding. Yeah, no, that's right. That's right. Jonah, thank you very much. Hey, my pleasure. After World War II, the Democrats stopped using the word progressive. It was too much associated with eugenics and fascism. But they never admitted they were wrong. They simply needed a new con. And so they turned to an expert in the art of stealing. There's a whole myth surrounding Saul Alinsky as a tireless crusader for social justice. He fought on behalf of unions and working people and African Americans. The real Saul Alinsky emerges in a March 1972 interview that he gave in the very year of his death with Playboy magazine. Were you politically active in college? I suppose I was a kind of instinctive rebel. Alinsky described his first experience in community organizing. I remember sitting in a crummy cafeteria one day saying to myself, here I am, a smart son of a bitch, but I can't make a living. And then it came to me, that little light bulb lit up in my head. I told the cashier that I lost my ticket. Uh, I'm really sorry, ma'am. I, I lost my ticket. And she'd seen all I had was a cup of coffee. So she said to me, That'll be five cents. Then I walked a few blocks to the next cafeteria in the same chain and ordered a big meal of buck forty-five. I ate in a corner far away from the cashier. Then switched the tickets and paid the nickel bill from the other cafeteria. My eating troubles were taken care of. Alinsky didn't stop there. I put up a big sign on the bulletin board and invited anybody. With the help of a big map of Chicago with all the branches of the cafeteria marked on it. I split my recruits up into squads according to territory. One team would work the south side for lunch, another the north side for dinner, and so on. All of us were eating free. Didn't you have any moral qualms about ripping off the cafeterias? Are you kidding? The right to eat takes precedence over the right to make a profit. Did you continue your life of crime? It was not crime. It was survival. But my Robin Hood days were short-lived. I was awarded the Graduate Social Science Fellowship in Criminology. I decided to make my doctoral dissertation a study of the Al Capone mob. 
and inside study. Alinsky was introduced to Frank Nitti, the number two operative in the Capone gang. Nitti's boys took me everywhere. Showed me all of the mob's operations. Once, when I was looking over their records, I noticed a $7,500 payment for an out-of-town killer. I said, look, Mr. Nitty, I don't understand this. You've got at least 20 killers on your payroll. Why waste that much money to bring in somebody from St. Louis? Nitty says, look, kid, sometimes our guys might know the guy they're hitting. If it's a friend, right away he knows that when he pulls that trigger, you've got to be a widow. Kids without a father. This is a business, not some kind of charity organization. Frank was a little disappointed by my even questioning the practice. He must have thought I was a bit callous. Don't be so damn callous! Didn't you have any compunction about consorting with and not actually assisting murderers? None at all. And let me tell you something. I learned a hell of a lot about the uses and abuses of power from the mob. Lessons that served me in good stead later on when I was organizing. Alinsky wasn't a social justice guy, he was a petty thief. He dropped dead near the beaches of Carmel in 1972, but little did he know that he would actually influence two people who would go on to far bigger rackets than he could ever imagine. Barack Obama started his political career in Chicago, studying and even teaching Alinskyite techniques. But Obama's first mentor was someone closer to home. Over lunch, I explained to a group of boys that my father was a prince. My grandfather, see, he's a chief, so that makes my father a prince. He'll take over when my grandfather dies. The tribe is full of warriors. Like Obama, that, that means burning spear. And I felt the boys readjust to me. Miss Hefty has invited your father to come to school on Thursday. She wants him to speak to the class, my mother told me. I couldn't imagine worse news. I spent that night and all the next day trying to suppress thoughts of the inevitable. My body squirmed as if it had received a jolt to the nerves. I was still trying to figure out how I'd explain myself when my father walked into our class the next day. I am a man from Africa. In order to be a man from Africa, I must be strong. He had been speaking for some time before I could finally bring myself back to the moment. He spoke of the tribes that still required a young boy to kill a lion to prove his manhood. How elders received the utmost respect and made laws for all to follow under great trunk trees. When he finished, all my classmates applauded heartily it fascinated me, the strange power of his. From his father, young Obama learned how to pitch. From Alinsky, what to pitch. And out of the two came Obamacare, the typical Alinskyite scam. If you like your plan and you like your doctor, you won't have to do a thing. You keep your plan, lower your premiums, 
by $2,500 per family per year. Here was Obama's pitch to the American people. Let's you and I team up and let's go get the big bad insurance companies. Then Obama went to the insurance executives and he said, listen guys, I'm going to force millions of Americans who don't want to buy health insurance to buy health insurance. And that means massive profits for you. The real point of the scheme? To enable the federal government to take over the healthcare industry, one-sixth of the entire U.S. economy. Obama's fellow Alinskyite also learned well at the hands of the master. Remember Alinsky's Eat Free scheme? That scheme is the core strategy of the Democratic Party for getting votes this year. I remember talking with one guy who let his stomach tell him how to vote. One night after his shift, why I vote for the Democrats. That should be me in there. I work just as hard as any of them. Someone needs to even the score. They are rich because they steal from you. Vote for me and It's on them. I need to find out more about this self-proclaimed champion of the people. We've learned the secrets of the Democratic Party. What's her secret? Investigations, all these deleted emails, all these hidden files. What does she have to hide? Hillary got started at an early age. She met Alinsky in high school. She was once a Goldwater girl but Alinsky helped radicalize her. She invited Alinsky to Wellesley College to speak. He's a self-termed professional radical. Please welcome a friend and mentor, Mr. Saul Alinsky. Probably wondering why I'm not thanking you for coming in here today. She wrote her thesis on Alinsky 
There is only the fight. American policy since then has been to scrupulously respect <laughs> neutrality. Oh, yeah, that's real smart. Mm -hmm. At her graduation address at Wellesley College, Hillary sought to demonstrate her moral superiority by giving it to black Republican Senator Edward Brooke. We may not be in the positions yet of leadership and power, but I find myself reacting just briefly to some of the things that Senator Brooks said. We've had lots of empathy. We've had lots of sympathy. The complexities are not lost in our analyses, but perhaps they're just put into what we consider a more human and eventually a more progressive perspective. Alinsky had a plan, but Hillary came up with a more radical plan. I just don't agree with your thesis. We've got to push, push, push from the outside. Unless we take over the government, then we can push from the inside. The student outsmarted the teacher. Hillary's plan was to take over the institutions of government, but she knew she wasn't a natural politician. She needed a pitch man, someone people liked. Democrats have a narrative of the Clinton partnership. Poor Hillary. Look at what she's had to put up with. And if her husband's a sex abuser, how's that her fault? Actually, it is. In many ways, she orchestrated all of this. Hillary knew early on that Bill could easily cross the line into sex abuse. At first, she got mad. Then she figured out she could use his addiction to make him dependent on her. She became his fixer, the one who cleaned up after him. My relationship with my wife, Hillary, means even more to me. Sometimes people ask me what it's like being married to Bill. He works so hard and keeps such long hours and becomes involved in so many other people's lives and problems. I always tell them it's great. Hillary covers up for Bill by attacking, undermining, and discrediting his victims. And it's worked all the way to the White House. If anyone finds out, deny, deny, deny. I did not have sexual relations with that woman. I, I think most Americans would agree that it's very admirable that you have stayed together, that you've worked your problems out, that you seem to have reached some sort of an understanding and, and an arrangement. Uh, wait a minute, wait a minute. <laughs> wait a minute. You're looking at two people that love each other. This is not an arrangement or an understanding. This is a marriage. That's a very different thing. If he were to be asked today, Mrs. Clinton, do you think he would admit that he again has caused pain in this marriage? No, absolutely not. And he shouldn't. The great story here for anybody willing to find it and write about it and explain it is this vast right-wing conspiracy. <laughs> he starts to uh, lie on my top there and then try to pull away from me. <laughs> and then he forces me down on the bed. Jones claims that Mr. Clinton then exposed himself to her and explicitly requested she perform a sex act. I was just shocked. I, I jumped up and I said, no, I'm not this kind of girl. And I tried to get away from him and I told him no. Yes, I was Bill Clinton's lover for 12 years. What was his demeanor like? 
Well, his face was very red. I remember it was beat red. He was such a different person at that moment. He was just a, a vicious, awful person. Now he tells me to deny it. Well, I'm sick of all of the deceit, and I'm sick of all of the lies. I remember saying to him, aren't you afraid that somebody's going to walk in here? The, and he said, he said, no, no, I'm, no, I'm not. And at that moment, she took hold of my hand and squeezed it and said, do you understand everything you do for Bill? And I just almost fainted. She looked straight at me and her smile faded. She looked very menacing. I was really frightened. I want to send a message to every survivor of sexual assault. Don't let anyone silence your voice. This was a woman who at least pretended that her life was ruined because somebody had alleged that she had a relationship at some point with Bill Clinton. You have a right to be heard. If an American had an adulterous liaison in the White House and lied to cover it up, should the American people resignation? If all that were proven true, I think that would be a very serious offense. That is not going to be proven true. I think we're going to find some other things. And I think that when all of this is put into context and we really people look at their motivation, backgrounds, look at their past behavior, some folks are going to have a lot to answer for. And you have a right to be believed. We're with you. He was just a, a vicious, awful person. Is Hillary really capable of enabling a rapist? Certainly she isn't cold-blooded enough to get a known rapist off the hook. It was, it was, it was fascinating place. Really interesting place. It's that was a huge rapist. Well, it was the daughter of a family who was raped with a side of tracks. You know, what was sad about it was that the prosecutors had evidence among which was his underwear. In this case, as with Bill, Hillary blames the victim. She called her emotionally unstable, with a tendency to seek out older men and engage in fantasizing. Kathleen Willie summed it up. Hillary Clinton is the war on women. While Bill's behavior is normal for Democrats, Hillary's is unprecedented. Bill, after all, is in a long tradition of Democratic plantation owners who took advantage of women under their control. He's doing the same thing they did. But the plantation wives, they didn't have a choice. Hillary does. She chooses to enable Bill's abusive behavior. She needs a partner in crime to take her all the way to the Oval Office. As for their famous showdowns, Hillary isn't mad at Bill for what he did. She's mad at him for getting caught. Like Bonnie and Clyde, the Clintons are professional thieves. They can't help themselves. They even looted the White House when they left. But they're not robbing banks. They're stealing America. The Clintons have been doing their rip-off schemes starting in Arkansas. Hillary invested $1,000 and made $100,000 in cattle futures in nine months. 
There was the Whitewater Land Deal and Travelgate, where they fired the travel staff to give the contracts to their buddies, and the renting of the Lincoln bedroom, and the selling of presidential pardons to big-time criminals. It turns out the Clintons were just getting started. We're all citizens of this world. Let's build a better future together. Remember Rock's insurance scam? They'll claim like 50 G's or whatever it is goes to like the, uh, the inner city help fund, AKA us. That's the first pitch, be a do-gooder. You can hide a lot of theft if it's concealed under the guise of charity. We learned that from the musical Evita. And the money get rolling from every side. Whether you can give $5 or $500 today. Evita's foundation funneled millions of dollars given for the poor into her own bank accounts. Certainly the Clintons wouldn't steal from the poorest of the poor. Author Peter Schweitzer thinks otherwise. He's been investigating the Clinton Foundation. It seems, Peter, that there has been an element of gangsterism in politics, but the Clintons, they have taken gangsterism to a completely new level. They've taken it to a global level and they put it on steroids in a massive way that's unprecedented in American history. The Clintons have a fabulously powerful and successful political machine, and part of it is, as Bill Clinton said during the first election, you get me, you get two for the price of one. And that's really the way they operate. It's a tag team mechanism. My husband, who I'm going to put in charge of revitalizing the economy, because you know he knows how to do it. While Hillary Clinton was Secretary of State, the Clintons took tens of millions of dollars that ended up in their pockets and hundreds of millions of dollars that ended up in the Clinton Foundation from foreign entities at precisely the time she is making decisions that affect those foreign actors. So this is unprecedented in American history. Will you continue to get speeches? Oh yeah. I, I gotta pay our bills. Every ex-president since Eisenhower has gone out and given speeches. The problem is, never did it happen when that ex-president's wife was a powerful senator and later secretary of state and could do favors for the people paying speaking fees that, by the way, were often inflated speaking fees. How much? $500,000, $750,000. To give a single speech. Sometimes a 20-minute speech. And these are being paid by interested parties in the third world that wants something from his wife, Hillary Clinton, and they usually get it. Tell me about Frank Schuster. Frank Schuster is a Canadian uh, billionaire investor in the mining industry who wanted to do business in Kazakhstan, in, in Central Asia. It has one of the largest deposits of uranium in the world. Well, Frank Schuster for years wanted to get lucrative uranium concessions in Kazakhstan, couldn't get them. So he flies with Bill Clinton, his friend, into Kazakhstan. Bill Clinton praises Nazarbayev, the dictator of the country, says he has a wonderful human rights record when he does not. Nazarbayev does what? He gives Bill Clinton's friend, Frank Juster, a lucrative uranium concession. Several weeks later, what does Frank Juster do? He writes a $31.3 million check to the Clinton Foundation. That's sort of the down payment. Frank Juster has given more than $100 million to the Clinton Foundation. But on that uranium deal itself, 
He's estimated to have made more than $300 million easily. The Clintons helped Frank Joostra get this lucrative uranium concession in Kazakhstan. And what do they do? They start buying uranium concessions in the United States. And by 2009, somebody looks at this company and says, we want to buy this company. The problem is, Dinesh, who wants to buy the company? The Russian government. Now, the U.S. federal government. The U.S. federal government. And Hillary Clinton is the head of the State Department at that time. Eight other investors in Uranium One suddenly decide to write checks to the Clinton Foundation. About $145 million. The federal government looks at it, the State Department signs off on this deal in addition to other government agencies, and the Russian government takes control of significant uranium deposits in the United States. Which they control now. Which they control now. Putting America at considerable risk. People sometimes say that the Clintons are doing some good to the foundation and so on, but when you're collecting hundreds of millions of dollars, let's say to rebuild Haiti. Utter devastation in Haiti. And you give less than 10% directly to people in need. Tens of thousands are feared dead after a 7.0 magnitude earthquake left much of the capital city of Port-au-Prince in ruins. Haiti has this devastating earthquake in January of 2010. The world pays attention, sees the suffering, the money floods in. The Clintons, in a sense, hijack the government uh, initiative. The best thing they can do for the next week to 10 days is send cash, even if it's 5 or $10. Send cash, even if it's a dollar or $2. Send it to this website. I will give the cash to the people immediately. And uh, that website is www.clintonfoundation.org slash Haiti Earthquake. Please, uh, if you can, contribute. $10 will be uh, uh, billed to your cell phone and is helping us get the food, the water, the medical supplies that we need. Hundreds of millions of dollars in taxpayer money that flowed into Haiti that were supposed to rebuild roads, build homes, uh, create infrastructure, create commercial opportunities. Those things didn't happen. The one thing that the Clintons did build a textile factory, they didn't even build in the part of Haiti that was affected by the earthquake. And it was largely a factory for the benefit of a handful of Clinton Foundation donors who give to their political causes and who give to the Clinton Foundation. If you talk to Haitians in New York, a lot of them demonstrate outside the Clinton Foundation saying, where did the money go? We are telling the world of the crimes that Bill and Hillary Clinton are responsible for in Haiti. And we are telling the American people that the 32,000, over 32,000 emails that Hillary Clinton said she deleted have evidence of the crimes they have committed. So I can only imagine if Hillary Clinton is president and this apparatus continues to hum along and expands, how bad it's truly going to be. Now we know why Hillary ignored those emergency calls for help from Benghazi. She couldn't figure out how to make a buck off of them.
With all due respect, the fact is we had four dead Americans. Was it because of a protest or was it because of guys out for a walk one night and decided they'd go kill some Americans? What difference at this point does it make? Now we know why Hillary never gives up the con about storing secret emails on her private server. And there were no security breaches. When it comes to national security, what difference at this point does it make? You're saying the Clinton server was unprotected? No, no, no. Yes. And you had total access to it had you wanted to download? Yes. Even after she's been busted? What, like with a cloth or something? No, well, no. Hillary denies, denies, denies. Now we know who Hillary Clinton really is. And we know the secret history of the Democratic Party. Go down, Moses. First, in the period of slavery and segregation, the Democrats took everything from some. Then progressivism through confiscatory taxation and regulation took something from everyone. If Hillary is elected president, we could see the completion of this thievery project in which the Hillary Democrats take everything from everyone. This would turn all of America into a plantation. Democrats are the party of exploitation, subjugation, and theft. They blame the South or Republicans or even America for the horrible things that they have done. They are the ones who are to blame. In addition to Indian removal and slavery, the Democrats are also the party of the Black Codes, segregation, Jim Crow, the Ku Klux Klan, lynching, forced sterilization, and sympathy for fascism. Democrats today claim to be the party of progress. But where's the progress? For blacks, they've created new urban plantations. For Indians, reservations. And for poor immigrants, barrios, ghettos, and slums. They put their voters in there and make sure they stay there. The only progress we see is progress for them. More wealth, more power, more control over America and over our lives. The Clintons are worthy successors of a tradition from Andrew Jackson through Woodrow Wilson. Are we not done with this larcenous duo? How much these partners in crime have already stolen from us? How much more will we let them take? Some candidates in this race are resorting to ugly, hateful rhetoric. Hateful rhetoric? The Clintons are hateful people with a hateful history. Imagine how much worse things could get if these two depraved crooks return to the White House. Thank you.
Wells believed that God had blessed America. She'd fought her whole life for freedom. She died having just written the words, Eternal Vigilance, the Price of Liberty. Once again, the party of Lincoln and Reagan must come to America's rescue. Not with bullets this time, but with ballots. They can't take America from us without our consent. Because of my conviction, I can't vote. But you can. Is America still the land of the free and the home of the brave? Our future depends on how we and you answer that question.
how will you know when you have become an American? You'll know when you become a Republican. Remember, don't tell anybody about this podcast. It's a secret. This was a treat for you. Top secret. You've taken an oath by downloading this or subscribing. This one's for you. Please do not share this. It's our little secret.